Hello and welcome to Disabilities Not a Bar. Um, as always, my name is Charlotte McDonald and I'll be your co-host along with... Halima Farouk. And today we are joined by one of our friends, uh, Taylor Blair, who is um, from Inner Temple uh, and is joining us today to discuss her experiences of having arthritis, which is something that I think is really a really interesting, uh, interesting mm-hmm. podcast episode for you all today. Um, so hi Taylor, welcome. Um, and we are going to, I'm going to pass over to Halima to go straight in with the questions. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so straight off the bat, <laughs> tell us why you wanted to um, pursue the bar. Like, is it something that you've uh, always wanted to do or something that sort of came about and you're like, I'll, I'll try the Avarista? <laughs> yeah, I think I always knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, And I did a lot of debating in school and kind of continued that through university. And that kind of felt like a really natural development. And then I came to the UK to study law and discovered that like the concept of a barrister existed because uh, in Canada, where I'm from, it's a joint profession. So there's no distinction between solicitors and barristers. So coming over here to study law and realizing that a barrister was an actual job that you could do, I was elated. (laughs) And before I knew it, I was staying here and I was going to bar school and here we are. Yeah. When did you move over? Six years ago, actually. Oh, great. So it's been a, I say, I I didn't, I didn't realize how long (laughs) you'd been here or not, but uh, that's, that's awesome. You came over. So did you come over specifically to study? Um, And why did you choose to come over here rather than, rather than study law in Canada? Yeah, I was looking at studying law in Canada and timing wise, it just seemed to make more sense because I would have had to take kind of a year out to do specific exams. You have to do the LSAT. And if I applied over here, I could basically come straight over um, applying in February and starting in September. And yeah, my partner and I went to a presentation that our university put on in Vancouver and we left the presentation and just thought it had been so amazing. And we both applied immediately afterwards and then looked up at each other and we're like, well, I suppose we're going. That sounds great. Oh, yeah. So decisive. That's amazing. You, you said you got excited when you knew that barrister existed separately to rather than the split profession. What is it that drew you to to be a barrister rather than uh, either a sister or, or a joint a joint lawyer? Yeah, I think it's it's two big things. So the first one is the advocacy, like having done debating for so long, that's always felt like such a big part of my life. So to be able to do advocacy as a career just actually blew my mind. And then the second piece is I love a good rabbit hole. So I'm the person who watches an episode of a show and immediately pulls up like 10 articles about it, doing the analysis of what happened or any like Easter eggs that I missed. Um, So I kind of love that it's a combination of those two things. It really appeals to my nerdy heart. Amazing. That sounds really good. So did you then do your um, your LLB here and then uh, from there you've just studied? Yeah, basically. So because I had done a BA back in Canada, I got to do this. It's called a senior status or like an accelerated LLB. So it was two years and I did a placement to make it three and then went straight through to the bar school. Amazing. Where oh. was your placement? What did you do? I worked in a bank. So I worked at UBS. Oh, um, which was actually really great. I was in an in-house legal team. They were really wonderful. Everyone was so supportive. Yeah, I learned a lot. It was great. It's interesting because I haven't heard, heard about people sort of having these middle uh, sort of years doing doing work until, until, until Halima said about hers. And then yeah. Uh, yeah, it seems that more and more people have done them. But it just wasn't an option for, for the uni I was at. So uh, it sounds really interesting to have that pra- like practical experience in the middle of your yeah. studies. Yeah. Yeah, I really benefited from mine. Um, and I think that's where my 
um, sort of, you know, love and inspiration for like other legal areas came from. Um, and I was managing my own caseload and it, it really just pushes you and you're like, oh my God, I work with people twice my age. <laughs> I was like the youngest in the office, um, but it was really thriving, you know. Um, um, moving on, um, obviously the, the series is Disabilities Not a Bar. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about your um, disability and um, how it has played a part in your education? Yeah, so I have arthritis. It's mostly in my hands, which is very inconvenient. But when I'm having a bad day, it's also in my hips and sometimes my feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, my educational story is kind of the same thing as my arthritis story in a lot of ways. So I, it's funny, I've always had bad hands. It's, it's so strange. I've always been like, oh, I'm really bad at doors. And on reflection, I'm like, okay, what does that even mean? Who's bad at doors? How can you be bad at doors? What I was actually saying was that I have terrible grip strength. And I've always had that. Mm. And then I did some field work um, during my BA back in Canada. And that really aggravated it. And so by the time I was moving over to do my LLB, um, it's kind of really started to kick off. And particularly, you know, there's a certain level of studying that happens in a law degree that kind of doesn't happen in other types of degrees, right? So my previous degree was like a a literature degree. And so I was not spending time writing out crazy notes, trying to memorize a thousand cases, right? That's a very unique law experience. And how I was doing that is I was handwriting everything. So I would sit Mm -hmm. down for a course And I would write out all of my notes again, and then I would rewrite them and condense it down until I could eventually get everything I needed to take into the exam down to one paper. That was my aim for every course that I did. And so there was one course in my second year that I was like in the final stages of getting it down. And I was feeling great. It was the day before the exam. Uh, I think it was a tort exam. And so, you know, you're bringing in a ton of cases to that, right? And all of a sudden, my hands just stopped. Like they basically just had, I don't know, they just cramped up really bad, caused me a lot of pain and kind of refused to carry on. And I had been ignoring signals for quite some time. Uh, So when it came, it really came and they were just, they were not functioning. It was not going to happen. So I had to go um, to try and figure out what I could do to move my exam. And because I was graduating that year, all that I could do was put it back to the summer, which would push back my grad date, which would push back the BPTC. And, you know, my family was flying from Canada to come to grad. It was a whole thing. Mm. So I was like, right, I'm, I'm going to sit this exam and then I'm going to figure out what, what's happening here. So I literally, I went to the store. I bought a ton of pain meds. I bought like a wrist wrap. And I practiced taping a gel pen to my hands so I didn't have to grip it and made sure that my writing was legible. (laughs) And then I went into the exam and the examiners were like, sorry, is that a roll of scotch tape? What are you doing? (laughs) And I just sat there and I was like (sighs) taping up my hand. Oh my goodness. And then wrote the exam that way. (laughs) And by some miracle, I managed to complete it and do like perfectly fine in it. But after that, I was like, okay, this is probably not long-term sustainable to carry. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was like, okay, this isn't sustainable. I need to figure out what's happening. And so it kind of kicked off from there. And then it's basically been an ongoing process of, you know, trying to figure out what was wrong for, honestly, the six years since, more or less, or the five years since. And how's that been in terms of um, pursuing that medically? So after that experience, was that the first time you went to 
to seek medical attention for it or had that had you had you gone before and it sort of been dismissed or what was what was the process in getting your diagnosis I guess yeah so I had gone to a doctor in Canada a couple summers before actually and when I went to the doctor I was describing my pain and you know saying that my hands weren't working and the doctor was like hmm yeah I think like maybe it's just a sprain I was a bit confused because it was both hands. So I'm like, I've managed to somehow sprain both of my hands. What are the odds for that? But, you know, I'm a clumsy person, so maybe that's a chance. And he was like, yeah, so I'm going to prescribe you something. Just take it next door and they'll fill it. He scribbled something out. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. He's like, really believe my pain. I'll, I'll take this over. Um, I'll get a prescription filled. This is wonderful. I feel so validated. And then I went to the prescription and I passed it over, kind of like impressed with myself, you know. And they looked at me and they looked at the paper and they were like, Taylor, this is extra strength ibuprofen. <laughs> and I just remember the feeling of, oh my gosh, that it just made me feel so dumb. It made me feel so invalidated that, well, I guess I couldn't read his writing, so that's not on me. But yeah, that he had sent me to the pharmacy to fill ibuprofen. Like that would be the, the problem solve for my sprained wrist apparently. So yes, that was two or three years before I had this experience. So a bit rough. And then after, after this happened, what was your, what was the process after that? Yeah. So after I had my exam experience, I started to see a doctor on campus who eventually referred me through to hospital. And again, they were treating it like it was an injury. It didn't occur to anyone. It didn't occur to me that it was any sort of long-term condition. So I think they initially were like, maybe it's carpal tunnel. So I had a ton of nerve conduction studies, which were very frustrating. I even had, they gave me a steroid injection and I had an adverse reaction to steroids, which they told me that that's impossible, that that's not ever supposed to happen, um, but it did. So my hand lost circulation for like two days, basically, and was swollen and crazy. And then eventually I got sent through to a rheumatologist and that was kind of when I started to get some more answers. And as soon as they referred me to a rheumatologist, I think they were quite clear that it's not an injury anymore. This is for sure some type of condition. We're just trying to figure out which one. And how do you feel, um, I mean, for even for listeners, um, we've had this other times with people having, we talked to, to, um, to Jordan about like having anorexia when he's, a, when he's a guy and that's when it's not really considered. But it's an interesting one for you because um, we've talked about, about you having arthritis before, but obviously the general idea of arthritis is it's something you're going to get when you're 70 uh, and you know it's something that you develop long term. So how was the process with um, not only them sort of coming to diagnose you very young, but how does it sort of yeah sort of feel having that condition and trying to uh, ex- even explain it to people um, who might be a little bit confused as they've never heard of it in a young person. You know, certainly I was aware that it could happen to anyone, but you know, you've never met anyone who who is young that has it. So um, how's that been? Yeah, it's been a challenge for sure. I mean, I really didn't know that it was something that you could have when you were young either. I mean. I'm sure this happens with lots of people once you learn about a a condition that you have is suddenly you realize that it's way more nuanced than you ever thought that it could be. So it turns out there's almost like there's hundreds of ways to have arthritis. There's loads of different types. So the one that we generally conceive of is osteoarthritis. So that's joint degradation over time. So that's the stuff that you get, you know, when you're 70 and 80, you've lived a long life of clutching pens and your, your hands are now sore for it. But the type that I have is autoimmune. So it's not related to use. Um, yeah, so I guess basically it's just knowing that there are lots of people that have it. Um, my doctor has assured me that he treats teenagers even, and it's not out of the ordinary for me to have it in my twenties, 
but yeah, I've had lots of fun conversations with family and friends where I told them, yeah, okay, I have arthritis now. And they just kind of look at me like, sorry, what <laughs> you do? <laughs> what is that? How does that work? So yeah, it's, it's been interesting, but I've learned a lot. I, have, I, know, I know that feeling, having a condition that's normally either someone gets when they're older or gets after a trauma, and I fit in, into neither category. So it's sort of a bit of a rare one. And people are like, that doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I was like, I know it doesn't make any sense. That's why they took 14 months to find it. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's a really tricky one. I think trying to explain it to people as well, um, I, can, I can understand that from that side of view um, of having, yeah, something that people are like, okay, I, I know what that is, but I don't understand how you can have it. Or I think I sort of get that slight concern that people almost question, you know, uh, not whether it's, whether it's real or not, but they sort of have that, are you sure that's what it is? Is everyone sure that's what it is? Because especially if they treated you like an injury for a long time. And I was so similar, they were like, no, it's, it'll be something else. You're young, it'll be something else. You're young, it'll be something else. So it's interesting that they thought it was an injury for a long time, even when you hadn't got an injury you know if, you, if you'd fallen makes sense but if you hadn't then uh, yeah it's a nice yeah. one to feel it's and the amount of friends and family who you know make suggestions or especially I think because it was such a long journey to get diagnosed people just throwing conditions out there and being like do you think maybe you have tennis elbow and I go oh I don't know how interesting or you know fitness instructors or yoga teachers being like I think you just really need to stretch it out with this pose let's do that and then I would walk away from the yoga class and realize that my hands were so much worse for having tried to stretch it out and push through the pain so I think slowly you also learn to just not listen to other people or what they think your condition is because you know what it is yeah it happened that happens uh, it happened so long especially yeah, I took so long to be diagnosed people like oh it must it might be this because my aunt's friends sisters dogs walkers you know hairdresser had something like that I was like cool um it's not it's not that and also tai chi and yoga will not fix it which is the thing that people kept saying and these people always mean well I think they're always like oh if I suggest this then that might help you in some way or you know this helped them so it might help you and they always mean really well but it can really wear you down I can imagine that was sort of similar yeah. carrots has been one for me like every time i meet someone they go oh you should eat carrots i go yeah i should shouldn't i <laughs> oh, brilliant. um what do you can i ask what you um what do you do now for you know obviously when it was bad before you said you you sort of pain meds and and gaffer tape but um in terms of now what helps you at the moment it might link into other questions but what what helps you now yeah so uh, I think because I've had much longer with it, I know what works and what doesn't, and I'm much more adept at noticing the signs when it's getting bad. So, you know, I've definitely noticed patterns with weather. So when the weather shifts, my arthritis is much worse. So right now it's definitely shifted to be much colder. And so quite naturally it's flaring up a little bit. I wear gloves, which is really fun. Um, bringing those into the office over the last couple of years, I've definitely gotten lots of questions. The, my favorite one actually is people go, oh yeah, it is really cold in here. That's really smart to wear gloves. <laughs> I'm like, well, I guess that's true, but no, it's, it's for a condition. Thanks. So yeah, um, they're basically compression gloves and I find that that really helps. And yeah, then of course, different types of pain meds now than I had access to then. And I mean, I have had lots of people suggest dietary shifts which I'm a bit loath to go for, but even my rheumatologist actually did say that like turmeric and ginger have been studied and have some uh, level of improvement for arthritis. So I guess just like trying to integrate some other stuff into my diet. Um, not that I've noticed a huge difference with that. I think 
working from home and being able to take breaks and being able to kind of like shake my hands out and walk away and not feel like I have to power through something that's for sure the worst thing um, are people at your work good with um understanding um with do you, do you explain to them what you have and your reasoning where you're sort of coming in with gloves or that you need time out and things like that are they are they good with that yes and no I think sometimes it's just easier to say oh I have bad hands I feel like I say that a lot because again, like we were talking about earlier, the conversation around, oh, I have arthritis. No, I'm not AD. (laughs) Yes, there are different types of arthritis. So I find sometimes it's just easier to kind of not have the conversation. So if they go, oh, it's really cold in here. I just kind of go, yes, it is very cold. Thanks. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think my work was generally quite good at giving me different accommodations. So even before COVID, I kind of had my own kit at home. So I had an external keyboard and mouse because that's quite hard for me. Um, Especially I work at a charity. So we have very, well, it's not very old tech. I won't throw them under the bus, but it's definitely not the top of the line tech. Right. And so even the keyboards are like those big clunky ones that are very sticky and that kind of stuff really aggravates my hands. So yeah, it's just, again, finding out the stuff that doesn't work for me and then being quite clear with my employer about what does, because I don't think and I, I guess at the beginning too, I didn't know what to ask for yeah. and they didn't know what to offer to me. So it has been a bit of trial and error around that, but generally speaking, they've been quite good. And then in terms of um, bar school, what sort of um, adjustments were you um, able to get? Yeah, I think bar school was probably the better experience of the LLB compared to bar school. So I got extra time, I got breaks, I was in a separate room. Um, for all exams and stuff like that and I didn't really decide that I needed any accommodations for lectures and stuff like that um, because really the slides were very thorough that kind of thing but yeah I found that they were really great they as soon as I ticked that I had anything to talk through I had a meeting with someone at City and they sat me down and talked through what my exact needs were and it was one of those rare scenarios where they offered solutions that were available and they almost offered more than I felt like I needed in a way. I think there were a couple moments where she was like, so do you want breaks and extra time or just breaks or extra time? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I guess I don't need both. And she kind of looked at me and went, it's fine. You can just have both. <laughs> don't I, worry about it. I was also at City um, and I was very had a very similar experience and I will, I will promote them in being very good for this because I... Uh, when I went, I was undiagnosed and I turned up and said, look, I've just been told by a consultant I shouldn't do this. Um, I don't know what it is. I am just unwell. Um, you know, I, I was, at the time was really struggling to walk. Um, and I just went in and I was like, what can I have? Like, how, how can you help me? And they were really good in that way. And yes, it actually took some adjustment through the year because at the time we just went for a, a couple of rest breaks. I was like, what if I get spasmodic pain? She said, okay, well, we'll give you, we'll give you, um, I don't know what it was at the time, 15 minutes to the hour, something like that, rest breaks. Um, and then gave me a key to the lifts and things like that. That um, and They were really good at, at making those sort of suggestions. Uh, and then after I had my first exam, I went back and I was like, well, that went terribly. Um, Somehow like this, does, this doesn't work for me. Um, and you know, within one meeting, I'd got even more rest break time uh, and I'd got extra time, which I didn't even know was possible for someone who... You know, didn't have either, um, you know, someone like dyslexia or writing with me. Absolutely. And I think it's really hard because, okay, I mean, if you're going for the bar, I think there's probably something in you that likes the competitive spirit. So for me, I felt a lot of guilt about being like, okay, am I taking away some of the competitiveness of an exam? Which I realized saying aloud sounds a bit insane. Like, 
that's not what the exam is about. <clears throat> but I think that was something that I had to work through. One of my earliest experiences in law school of taking extra time. I had extra time and I was in a separate room to uh, most of the other candidates. And I remember my friend, we left the exam and she was going on about how there had been a motorcycle firing in the background somewhere that she could hear from the main exam room, but I couldn't hear from the other exam room. And she was going on um, about how that was really going to affect her score and how I was so lucky that I had been in this separate room and that I had extra time. And of course I was going to perform better because I had this like separate experience. And I, again, she didn't mean it in, she didn't mean it as anything. Right. But you do internalize that a little bit and being like, Oh God, I feel really guilty that I wasn't there to have that experience or that that's how everybody else that was their testing. Mm -hmm. And I had a separate <clears throat> testing condition and therefore me getting a good score on the test is not the same or it's not as deserved. Yeah. Yeah, I've 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 had similar experiences with that because <laughs> shocker, I get double the times so that I get a hundred percent extra time, and especially with um, like our BSV exams, so civil litigation and criminal litigation, where people are like, oh, we need to make sure we do like one question every three minutes or whatever, one question every every one and a half minute. There's, you know, and then they look over at me and they're like, oh, you don't need to worry, do you? And it's like, well, really, I, I you know, I'm, this isn't fun. I don't like having all day exams because I'm literally in them all day. I get exhausted. My eyes are falling out of the sockets. Um, and I've had to retake them a few times. So it really hasn't been a pleasant experience for me. But they don't see that side of the story. They just see, oh, you're so lucky to have extra time. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think it's a lack of understanding that it's not an easier time because you've had spare or because you've had breaks. It's like those breaks are because my hands stop functioning or because yeah. I'm exhausted from reading this paper. Yeah, I think it's with mine, like what people don't understand um, for me and what I sort of yeah, it's understandable. But they, when when I had rest breaks, people were like, "Oh, it's just time to go away and think about the question." It's like my mind is not thinking about the question when I'm in the corridor with pain shooting through my body. I completely yeah. forget the question, and then I have to go back into the room and reread the question. And that's what my extra time is for. Uh, in, in also having brain fog, which I get sometimes as well. But it's just having that extra time to to go back and write, start the question again. And as you'll know from the, the bar exams, some questions are like a page long to read. They're enormous. <laughs> and if I get halfway through one of those and then have a pain attack and have to leave and come back, I don't just sweep back in <laughs> the second half of the question. Is it's starting it again? Um, <laughs> and it is about it's about achieving equality, not about yeah. For some reason, us getting extra like. Yeah, we keep calling it extra, but it's, it's actually just the time we need rather than uh, rather than anything else. Um, yeah, and actually, but the framing, how we're framing it for ourselves also matters because I think I am quite bad at that. I really don't give myself the grace. Mm. That I would love for other people to give me too, but I think more importantly is for me to say, you know, Taylor, this is not undermining some faux competitiveness in an exam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is just the thing that you need to yeah. go through this course. It's not anything else or yeah. yeah, generally taking breaks or taking meds. I'm always like very cautious about that. And I kind of have to remind myself, Taylor, this is just what you need. I, I don't know why you're kind of being coy with yourself and with the yeah. accommodations that you need. Absolutely. I quite liked at basketball, actually, there were, there were quite a few people in my, in the extra room. And it was like, okay, and you'd look around and there's people that I knew all, knew all year. And I was like, you need extra time as well? Oh, no. Like, it was just nice. Actually, I, I found it quite a bonding experience with people. Especially oh, I, I had 
all to myself. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I, yeah, no, I had between sort of three and, and 10 people um, in my rooms, but it was just lovely to, yeah, just have a little bit. It felt, still felt like a little bit of a bonding experience. Um, yeah. To meet other people who also had invisible conditions. Brilliant. So we talked about your time sort of at, at bar school and getting your diagnosis. When were you sort of first aware that, that something perhaps was wrong and how were things during sort of earlier life and, and school and your um, BA or LB? Yeah, I think there were times when I was younger, so in school, where, I don't know, I would be playing different sports and I would have a hard time with grip strength. So I think grip strength was probably the first thing that I started to experience, which I've um, experienced for like, I guess, 10 years now. The time when it really became an important thing in my life was I used to work in the field as my summer job when I was in university the first time. And I think that was, it was partly manual labor and partly kind of like admin stuff. And that was really, really hard on my hands. And I think that was the first time where, um, so I would be doing painting, for example, and my one hand would get so bad that I would then swap to the other hand for painting for the afternoon. And then by the end of the day, both of my hands <laughs> were struggling. Um, so I think that was the first time where it started to really impact my productivity and my moods. But I just, again, I thought it was like linked to soreness or discomfort. And that was just a normal thing that people would experience. There was a lot of time, I think, that I spent being like, oh, my hands are just sore or my hands are just bad or I just have poor grip strength. It didn't connect to me that it was something else. And then obviously coming over to the UK and studying law school and studying in an intense way that I hadn't really been required to before. That was when it kind of properly kicked off and it became evident that it was no longer me just having sore hands that would go away in a couple weeks and that it was going to be something I had to kind of properly sit down and see someone and deal with. So day to day, how does that, so you talk about grip strength, um, obviously something that um, if I'm honest, I don't think about <laughs> like sometimes I I've lost a bit of dexterity. So like I knock things over or I sort of just drop things. I kind of forget to engage my hands uh, now, but um, how does that actually affect you sort of day to day? Are there certain things that are particularly hard, not necessarily in it, like an education setting, obviously a pen and things, but are there other things that you struggle with as a result? Yeah. I mean, jars are my true nemesis, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is infuriating because one of my favorite foods is pickles, but specifically pickles bought in North America. And I transport pickles across the sea every time I fly. And then I just stare along <laughs> the jar, unable to open them until my partner can step in and help. I'm just imagine you cradling this jar of pickles. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, probably embarrassing to admit in this context, but there you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of the the day-to-day -day one. I think the biggest one for me is typing. Typing and writing notes. That's the the one that I really, really struggle with because it's such a core part of what our work days look like, right? Yeah. And yeah, you know, sometimes I write a long email and afterwards I just have to kind of pause and do a walkabout and stretch out my hands or ask myself, Taylor, why didn't you dictate that email? What are you doing? <laughs> Um, so that's definitely the biggest one. Can you use things like um, yeah, it does. Yeah, so speech, speech to text. You, can you use any programs like that that'll help you? Uh, yeah, you said dictating it. Is that helpful to just talk it rather than yeah, type it? Yeah, I think the first time that I proper properly used the dictation software was when I was writing up my master's for the BPTC. So I know other providers don't necessarily do this, but for the BPTC masters at City, you do have to write kind of a full dissertation. And at that point I was, you know, aware of my condition in a way that I hadn't been previously. And so I did dictate quite a bit of my masters, um, which actually was really good. I was really pleased with how that went because, you know, I would dictate for the bulk of it and then I could just go back and edit. 
And so it was much less work for my hands and I was kind of just much happier throughout. Brilliant. But yeah, other dictation software um, is definitely more expensive. So again, I work at a charity, so mostly I just use Dictate in Word, but mm -hmm. there's software um, that you can use um, that I don't know if either of you are familiar with. I think it's called Dragon Software. Is yeah. Kind of the one. Yeah. 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 And that one is like literally commands for everything. And actually, I have heard of some solicitors using that as kind of a normal feature because it's just more efficient generally. So if you've like had a client meeting, dictating a note about that, how that meeting went for kind of two minutes instead of sitting down and typing in and editing it out is much more efficient. So I'm hopeful that that will kind of become more common because it is quite tricky in an office setting to then be dictating. It's much easier to use when you're at home. I shouted mm -hmm. barrister who's um he was junior and the senior uh, barrister on the case um was a QC and I would meet with him beforehand just because both of our trains got in early but he would um rather than type his notes for advocacy would dictate them um and it would yeah type them down and he said yeah for him his brain didn't work in a way that he could just sit and type if he spoke it aloud he could present do it as if he was presenting it and he said it flowed he said if he, if i tried to do it in silence and just type it wouldn't work so i think it's one of those things that actually yes it's very beneficial but can be beneficial for a lot of people um and yeah i don't think about it but i think it would really help really help me sometimes as well for, for various reasons so definitely something to explore no i think it's a great adjustment and to be honest i i think you kind of get siloed into how you think you learn or how you think you have to approach things so for me, I was like, well, I'm definitely a visual learner. So I need to write out all of my notes and there's no way that I'm going to be able to learn if I'm not able to do that process. And then I, of course, stopped being able to do that process and had to kind of rethink it. Yeah. And to be honest, I found that I really do learn by reading things aloud and by thinking through it aloud and then having it dictate. So the process for my master's, I actually was so surprised how much I enjoyed it and how I think it brought some stuff out that maybe wouldn't have come necessarily if I had just been typing. So broadly, I think that was a very positive experience for me. How has your experience been at, you know, mini pupillages or other legal experience that you've done? Um, do you disclose your disability or have you, in, in some aspects, have you found that, no, I won't? Yeah, I really oscillate. I'm not consistent at all in how I do that. I think sometimes it depends on where I'm at. So if I'm in a flare and I'm doing a mini, there's kind of no way to avoid that, right? Because I'm going to have to wear gloves or I'm going to have to have a conversation. I think also it's tricky when you're the junior person. So when you're on a mini pupillage or even when you're first starting in a job, the expectation is sort of that the most junior person sits down and takes the note. And I've struggled with that in a work context and I struggle with that on a mini too. And there are times where I just kind of push through. I, I, um, I didn't know this before I had a condition actually, but that conditions fluctuate so much. And so now there are lots of times where I make the decision and I'm like, okay, this is where I'm going to expend my energy today, or this is how I'm going to use the capacity that my ha hands have for the day. And then that's probably going to be it for me. Mm -hmm. um, I did have one experience marshalling actually, where I think I mentioned earlier that I had a steroid injection that I had an adverse reaction to. So my hand was in a sling <laughs> for my marshalling. Uh, there wasn't really much to be done about that. So I did definitely have to disclose it for that one because um, it was my right hand too. My right hand is typically worse than my left and I'm right-handed. So there wasn't really any way that I could take notes or engage on the marshalling in that way. Um, so obviously I had to kind of say it then, but it just, it really completely depends for me. I, I wish I had a consistent answer. Uh, same with, you know, pupillage application forms and stuff like that. I 
just really changed my mind every time. <laughs> so yeah, it's a process I think for me. You just mentioned then about um, pupillage applications and you've told us that you, um, how you have done a round of um, pupillage applications before. Um, and when you say you sort of fluctuate with those questions, um, do you mean that you sort of, do you disclose it in the normal uh, you know, way at the end of the form with extenuating circumstances, but then you know, do, you, do you always put it there? And also do you ever talk about it in terms of sort of resilience or some of those other questions that come up? Um, have you ever put it in, into those? To be honest, I don't typically, though um, I am open to that. I think that would be really, it's a great example of resilience. So um, I would be quite happy to talk about it. I think there have been a few times where I haven't disclosed it and then you go forward in the process and the next stage is like a written, I don't know, mm -hmm. a written assessment. And I realize that I haven't disclosed and now suddenly I have to ask for extra time and then I feel quite weird about that. So I think having gone through the process a couple times, that probably going forward, I would. Um, I definitely have gotten to the point at the end of the form, so like the equality monitoring, equalities monitoring form bit, and it says, do you have a disability based on the Equalities Act definition? Yes, no, prefer not to say. And sometimes I'm just like, maybe it is prefer not to say. Maybe it is yes, maybe it is no. Like, I don't know. It does affect my life on a day-to-day -day basis in a significant way, but do I consider myself as having a disability? I don't know. So I think I, I put a lot of weight into that question when really it probably is just a tick box exercise and I should probably just say yes. But instead it becomes this like sudden question of identity that I'm faced with at the end of the people of Jab. Yeah, no, I, I completely feel that. And I think it does help when, when some things just say, are you disabled? But when one say, do you, do you define yourself as disabled under the Equality Act? When you read the Equality Act, I'm like, well, yes, <laughs> on, on this definition, yes. And for this for this podcast, we, ne we never ask people to, uh, you know, declare that they, they are disabled. It's just a condition that affects you. Um, that's absolutely fine. We don't, you know, demand a label. And I think that's quite important. But I know for me, I found, you know, I have a chronic condition and people, some people say that's not a disability. It is a separate category, but it, you know, disables me, you know, you, you, you know, me in, in real, real life, uh, you know, I use a sick often, um, but similarly to you, because I fluctuate, you know, I, I don't have this, I have, I've had 12 months plus of, of having this condition, which is what it is uh, under the definition. But when I have this fluctuation, it's like, well, sometimes I have good days. Like, do, am I not disabled on those days or am I just disabled having a good day? Um, and so I think it is a difficult one. Um, but yeah, in, in pupillage applications, it is that thing where you come to the end and you're like, oh, now I've got to answer this question or, or how do I answer it? Um, yeah, I, I, I remember filling, even filling that in before I had this condition because I'd gone through a lot in the last couple of years. And it was sort of like, um, you know, the one that's like anything else you want to know, um, sort of like, here's all the things, but I'm not trying to sort of dump all of my life on you, but also all these things have happened and I kind of want you to know that I've got through them. Um, so yeah, it is, it is a tricky one, tricky one to, to navigate, but we, we do ask people sort of, yeah, if you put it in those other questions, because you know, for, for some people, um, I mean, Halima, is, you know, especially you said before about it being your, you know, a massive part of your life. Um, so I think mm -hmm. how much you sort of, yeah, say, say that it's, it's a big part of your life but I think it's important that you raise there about um yeah some require uh, you know, uh, written writing tasks um or extra time and actually asked it was last year was the first time I asked for that time um I hadn't in the past I was like no I'm gonna push through this but then <laughs> one time I had a flare-up just before 
once they'd, they'd given me the task, then I had a flair and my, the whole thing went terribly. And I was like, right, that's it for next year. I am declaring that I need at least the 25% extra time, which is mainly just me trying to you know, focus rather than, um, rather than anything else. So that's, yeah, really important to, to say. So coming up to the next round, you get, you're going again <laughs> this year. Um, yeah. How do you feel that you'll, you'll approach it, approach it this time? Yeah, I think I am just going to tick yes for the equality monitoring form because that's not asking about my identity, really. That's an entirely separate question, how I feel about my condition or what that means. It's really just for diversity monitoring. And I also think if all of the people who were on the fence about their identity ticked yes in that box, really that so chambers can understand how many people with disability people with disabilities are applying and how they should be making accommodations and if people aren't disclosing then they maybe think they don't need to make accommodations the same way and actually it's just perpetuating a problem so i think going forward i do want to put that down so that hopefully that can kind of help the overall approach because really that's what that data is used for um, in terms of my own application and including it yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know that I've necessarily thought through how exactly that I would include it. I definitely haven't to date. I think because I don't really think that it did impact on my grades or something like that. It wouldn't naturally fit as an extenuating circumstance necessarily. But I do like the idea of including it in the kind of long form questions or at interview. That might be a place where it kind of more naturally you can have a discussion about it and fit it in as an example. But yeah, I think generally I do worry a little bit. I know obviously it shouldn't adversely affect any application, but I think I do have concerns about, you know, if I am in pupillage and I'm really exhausted because that's one of the side effects of arthritis, I sleep so much more than I did before. So the crazy hours of pupillage, is that just going to drain me? You know, not being able to take case notes or power the night before to produce a piece of written work or having to figure out how to dictate or something like that the night before. Is that going to be tricky for me? You know, do I want to be honest about how that's going to be tricky? So I don't know. I think I'm of two minds about that one, but it's definitely one that I, I do want to think about a bit more, I think. Yeah. And what are you applying for? Um, what is there a certain area of law you're applying for this year to Savages? Yeah, generally civil and commercial. So I mentioned that I did a placement. I don't know that I had considered commercial really too much before um, I, I did that placement. And I had a realization where I was like, okay, I actually just really love the law. I love getting down into the details of the law and working through a problem. And so for me, it was kind of less important that I inherently connected with say, the basic facts of the case, for example, it was the problem solving exercise that I absolutely loved. And so I think, yeah, civil, commercial, that's where I'm falling. We normally ask, um, you know, what the best experience, we, we say best, worst, and something you'd like people to take away. Um, so we'll go with positives first. <laughs> What's the best um, experience you've had in terms of your disability, whether that's an interaction with someone or... Um, someone at school or I don't know do you sort of see where I'm going with this? Yeah um, I have a couple of really good friends who I think are better at remembering that I have a condition than I am sometimes so for example I'll be over at a friend's house and say she's making food and I'll be helping and making stuff happen and she'll look over and see me really struggling to stir the cookie dough or something and she'll just look over at me and go, Taylor, come on. <laughs> Is that helpful to you right now? Or can I do that for you? 
Um, and it is those reminders because I think my instinct is to just be like, you're fine, you're fine, power through. And so someone else coming in and cutting through that, um, I find really actually quite helpful. So um, I think that's been really, really good. I hate asking for help. Um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people do, but it feels very, um, I think also it's quite tricky to turn to my partner and be like, I'm just a weak girl. Can you please open this jar for me? But like, really, I can't open the jar. The jar of pickles that I've been waiting for. <laughs> uh, I, I, I completely feel that. And I, I will happily be open and honest about this. But um, so I do um, CBT, um, cognitive, behavior, cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, asking for help has been my task for the last four weeks. Um, and so she's like, sets tasks. And it's like, ask for help and don't feel guilty about it um because and I've, I've had to literally document when i've asked for help and how the reaction's been from people um you know because i build up in my head of people being like oh they're gonna hate me if i ask for help they're gonna be like oh you're the friend who always makes us do things for you or you know a flatmate or a partner um and I, I, you don't want to be that you want to be the normal partner or the normal you know whatever normal is in inverted commas uh, and not ask not ask for that help and want to be able to do those extra things so and it's been yeah for me it's been asking for help and then writing down how people react sometimes it's you know someone's in the kitchen you go oh could you put the kettle on because i'll need a hot water bottle because i'm flaring um and i would just be like yeah but if someone asked for that who didn't have any kind of condition no one's going to question it and so it's that overthinking i think for me which might be the same and um it's interesting hearing you sort of talk about the yeah, things sort of getting getting worse throughout the day i don't know if you know the spoon theory um, I've never brought this up, uh, but it's one that actually recently has really helped me. And it's the concept that when you wake up in the morning, you have a jar of spoons. Um, and every time you do something, it's, it costs a spoon. So, you know, by doing it, by having a shower, the energy that that's taken might be one spoon or two spoons or whatever. And sometimes if I get too tired, I just tell myself, you've run out of spoons. You've run out, of, you know, you don't have another spoon to go and do your cleaning or you don't have a spoon to do the laundry or, you know, you've run out of spoons and you can't go out for the night. Um, and that's actually been quite helpful. It's like, it's not that I'm weak. It's just at this point, my energy has been used up for the rest of the day, you know, however you want to sort of consider it points, points of energy. Um, it's almost like you have this, yeah, a bar and wherever you've used it. So it's it kind of sounds like that. It's like you don't want to use up your spoon to stir the cookie dough because you want to use it for socializing or something mm -hmm. like that. So um, I think it's quite a helpful, um, yeah, way of, um, of sort of uh, visualizing how it feels and that's how I've explained it to other people sometimes as well it's like no I used this up by doing this earlier and now I can't do it anymore and it's quite a nice sort of little subtle way um, of doing it just, I like that no I think that's a great way of thinking about it um, I really struggle with carrying things so you know being in bar school and carrying the most massive textbooks in the land in a bag on a full tube and then also having an invisible disability so i feel you know i couldn't ask for that seat because i really i don't need a seat for standing i need a seat because i can't carry my bags and hold uh onto oh, the tube yeah. or whatever so when people offer and i don't have to ask because my hands just kind of yeah they cramp up they're really not happy or i carry groceries um, because it's like this really awful pairing of I'm both the type of person who a thousand percent would like insist on carrying all of the groceries in one go and like <laughs> overly <laughs> just completely yeah. myself in the groceries to only have to go once um, paired with also not being able to carry because, <laughs> yeah. because of my hands um, so yeah having someone step in and just being like okay Taylor is this does this make sense for you right now can I support you um, and sort of just leaving me to my own devices which naturally lead me astray <laughs> 
Hey, that sounds really good. Um, I, I think having that support bubble is, is really, um, you know, especially when you're going through, like you're trying to figure out, do I have a disability? How do I, how do I figure this out? And then you've got that support who, who are there. Um, my, my family, like my, my siblings and my mum, they've been an amazing um, support bubble for me. So I completely agree with you. Um, <laughs> moving on to the fun stuff. Uh, what's the worst sort of experience that you've had? Yeah, is, is there sort of one thing that stands out that you just think that, you know, affected your journey along the way? Yes. So, I mean, I've definitely had the tube experiences or friends making comments about arthritis for old people or have I tried yoga. I've absolutely had all of that. But I think the one that was probably the most foundational for me was actually when I was just about to get diagnosed with my rheumatologist. And at this point, I was still wrapping my head around the fact that I had a long-term condition, that it wasn't an injury. And he comes out and tells me like, no, so we're pretty sure it's arthritis. Um, you know, we'll work to figure out which exact type and what it is that we do going forward. And I just remember getting quite emotional and being like, oh, okay, yeah. And he goes, but don't worry, uh, we think it's quite mild, so you'll basically be fine. And I remember just looking at him and being like, but my hands don't work. What do you mean? Like, I can't hold a pen. Like, surely that's not minor. That's not a minor impact on my life. And him being like, well, you know, like compared to other cases of arthritis, it's very minor. And I just sat there like slack jawed because mm. it was such a big emotional experience for me. And then I asked him the question of, okay, but surely I'm too young to have arthritis. I'm in my twenties. What's happening? He was like, again, I have like teenagers in all the time. And he was just so dismissive of my pain. And he was so dismissive of my experiences. And granted, like having done research now, I do appreciate that there are people with arthritis who very genuinely can't get out of bed in the morning because all of their joints are so sore. So relative to that, I appreciate that it is a minor condition, but in terms of how it is in my life, it does not feel minor. And yeah, I remember that being really, really tough um, and really upsetting and me trying not to get emotional in that meeting with him. Mm. And then afterwards thinking about it and being like, okay, I think there is actually a takeaway here in terms of how, you know, we as professionals are approaching cases or approaching vulnerable clients. And for us, things can feel very pedestrian, but for them, like going through the court system is probably exceptionally overwhelming. And also it's probably just exceptional for their life. Like that's not something that they're used to doing. And so I have tried to make sure that I don't ever make other people feel the way that that doctor made me feel because yeah, it, I felt so dismissed and that was really hard. And I think feeling dismissed like that also set me back mentally because mm -hmm. instead of asking for the things I needed or asking my friends or even intervening with myself, I would be like, well, it's just minor. So don't worry about it. Just power through. So it's actually helped contribute to this negative approach that I've kind of created for myself that I've had to sort of work through separately. I think it's, you raised something important there, which was having people compare you in some way to someone else, especially yeah. Conditions vary and you know yes yes there are people who have less sight than Halima there are people who can walk less well than me who have fibro um, and things like that and I had a condition before this one when I, I landed myself in hospital when I was um, about four, I think I was 14 at the time and this was a sort of positive experience but the, the doctor um, came came around so I said you know what's your score out of, of 10 and I said oh six or something and he sat down next to me and he said, I need you to know that this is not a six. I need you to know that your pain is more valid than this. 
And he said, why have you put it so low? I know the condition you have. It's going to be, you are in immense pain. We're putting you on morphine. Like it's as bad. Why have you labeled it a six? And my reply was, um, I went down the corridor to the toilet and I passed a baby who had all over burns, who was covered in, you know, plaster casts. And I said, that, that can't, I, I can't be feeling worse than that, that child is. Um, and that genuinely was what, and it, it was that moment that he said, your pain is valid. Your pain is valid in your own way. Um, mm-hmm. and we need to know, he said, you know, in, in future, if you have this bad pain and this is what you're thinking about, it could be dangerous for you. Um, and so sit ever since, you know, I, I do every time I have to fill out one of those pain score charts, I do, I sit there and I go, oh gosh, someone's going to be feeling this worse. And it's, and actually no, he emphasized that every time it's your pain, it's what you, what you have. Um, and I think people who compare you and say other people have got it worse, especially when you've just been diagnosed is, you know, it, it was heartbreaking when someone looked me in the eyes and said, we can't fix you. This is it. This is it for your life. And yes, there are things that can make it better, but this is it for your life. It is, it's actually, it's really hard to take. And I've, you know, through, through pain therapy, I've basically had to grieve the loss of my you know, what I've lost in the past. I've lost being able to do things that I couldn't do. Um, and so, yeah, yes, it's, there are people worse, but that doesn't make your experience any better by telling you that it's worse. Um, mm. I think, yeah, as, as a community, I think one thing I've had is I've been made to feel valid, you know, for, you know, yes, I can walk fine sometimes or I'm in less pain. doesn't make me any, you know, have, make, doesn't make, mean my condition is any, better or for myself so i think you raised that's a really important point <laughs> and it and it loops back because if you someone t- tells you exactly what you said um you know, said oh there's people out there with it worse you're like okay well then i shouldn't ask for adjustments you know or i should just push through um and it it is that perpetuation that we need to to try and overcome and um yeah a really brilliant point that you said earlier about you know if we put it down then you know make sure people are aware even if we don't sort of emphasize it, it's just to let you know on these on these equality forms um actually it could make things better in the long run for for others and i think that's yeah a really a really important point thank you yeah i mean i really like what you said about um someone validating your experience and saying your pain is valid i think that's really important um because i had such a long process to getting diagnosed you know there were lots of avenues that we went down that didn't end up resulting in a diagnosis right and every time you go down one of those avenues and they tell you at the end, nope, everything's fine. You're a bit like, well, <laughs> are you sure? Because it's actually not fine. Just because it isn't carpal tunnel doesn't mean that I'm fine. It just means I don't have carpal tunnel. And so, yeah, the amount of times that I've walked out of a doctor's office and felt like, am I making this up? Is this just in my head? And I think, I mean, t- auto-inflammatory conditions are, or autoimmune conditions, pardon, can be tricky because, I mean, I guess I'm, (laughs) you probably have experienced this too. You never know what experience is your condition and what experience isn't. So like, (laughs) I will at the end of the day be like, oh my God, my shoulders are so sore. Oh no. Okay. So this is my arthritis talking. Now I have like arthritis in my shoulders. Is this like a downward spiral of my condition? And then I actually think back and I'm like, oh, Taylor, you sat super hunched over on the couch for two hours today. It's probably just that. Go to bed and you'll be fine. And then mm. that happens. <laughs> so oh, it's like yeah. this self-monitoring and yeah. No. I completely, completely get that. And I've, I had a, a talk with my, my GP is amazing uh, now. And I had exactly that. Every time I get really, really bad pain, like, uh, like 
uh, sort of like unbearable levels of pain i sit there and go right am i having the worst flare-up i've had in x amount of time or is this something else and the first time i had that and i called the doctor and we had tests done it everything came up negative i had consultation everything was negative they said okay this was just a bad flare-up which obviously made me feel like i'd wasted everyone's time um and was awful and then when it happened again I was I was so worried about coming forward with it um, and it took me longer than I probably should have done to call a call in um, and eventually I did and I've had scans since and they found extra other things you know um, they found a lesion and a tumor so it's sort of like I need to, yeah that that just to say it's okay to to, to question it and uh, whether it is your your current condition or not um, but it makes life very confusing I think when you get pains where you're like exactly that I, I get like back pain I'm like oh is this is this a is this part of me or is this is this something new or do I did I do something wrong and yeah I think a lot of times I question as well um like whether yeah I'm experiencing something that someone else will will and I just shouldn't relate it at all to my condition or whether it's uh yeah something new that you should you should pay attention to or just do better like yeah for me sitting better or or whatever it's very very cute um, perfect. This leads us nicely to our last question, which is um, if there's anything that you would like someone to take away from your journey um, and this podcast, what would that be? I mean, there's definitely a lot. <laughs> um, I think a big one for me is that I'm quite happy to talk about my condition. I know that that's not the case for everybody, but mm -hmm. I really dislike when people kind of tiptoe around it or I see people looking at my gloves or I see people looking at, you know, my extra accessories or whatever at work or in my yeah. personal life and people feel uncomfortable asking about it or even indicating that they've noticed because yeah. I see that they've noticed. <laughs> um, so I kind of think don't be afraid to have conversations with people like as long as you're leading with politeness and kindness um i would much rather talk with people than feel like i'm observing other people observing my condition yeah i think i think this is a continued um theme because uh, charlotte and i mentioned this uh, very early on in the series um is that i would much rather someone ask uh than to uh, <laughs> grab me and put me on top of a, in a bus like you know uh, so it's just like you know just just ask we're, we're we're happy to talk as long as like you said as long as you're asking in a, in a polite manner uh, i'm not assuming um that's appreciated yeah and if people see me struggling so um i went back to canada at the beginning of september and you know i'm coming back with my suitcase on the train and people see me really struggling with that because of course i'm importing pickles which are very heavy <laughs> and then i'm trying to lug my suitcase onto the train <laughs> Um, and if people see me struggling and offer to help, I would never turn that down or I would never see that as people being patronizing or anything like that. I would always be very, very pleased to have them help. And if I didn't want them to, I would just say, no, thank you. So yeah, I think just with friends and family, especially when they offer, I feel very heartened. And like I said, with my one friend, it's almost a reminder to me that I don't have to push through, which is kind of my instinct. So more of that, I guess. Absolutely. I, I think that's a, a nice takeaway. Yeah, no, I think yeah, open conversations are, are wonderful if, if done in the right way. And yeah, people, people have been, I've had a couple of people ask recently in, in really polite ways, just, um, do you mind if I ask what's, what's happened rather than the assumptions? Uh, what have you done to your leg? <laughs> or uh, is always the one if I had a pound for every time, you know, or, and actually some people have done that. And I, I've been open to have a conversation with those people because they've done it in such a nice way. And if I'm not in, in the mood, I just say, oh, I have a permanent disability now. 
and sort of try and cut the conversation but I'm perfectly fine with that yeah so it's yeah having that over communication is is fantastic and um, but also people need to find it in their own ways as well you know if, if you're not comfortable that's okay you know you can sh- shut it down in different ways or find yourself a little sound bite I do sometimes of just just how to explain it in a little brief package and then you can move on um, and that makes it fun yeah uncomfortable that's yeah and I guess um just before we head off a, a final plea if you will so um, for context, I work at a responsible business charity, and so I work with businesses who are basically always trying to get their employees to disclose their personal information. So that includes their ethnicity, their gender, and any conditions that they might have, for example. And a big way that employers use that data is to inform what their policies and approaches are going to be going forward, because they don't understand the scope of what their employees have or don't have unless their employees disclose So they also then can't make appropriate accommodations um, or maybe they don't think that it's important because only a a percent of their, I don't know, colleague population has a disability. And actually it's much higher than that and people just aren't disclosing. So they, if it was 10%, say, then maybe they would be like, oh God, okay, absolutely. We need a ramp. Though they should of course have a ramp anyway. But I think it does really help inform decision-making and it's quite important. So my plea off the back of that uh, mini rant, if you will, is the conclusion that I've come to, which is it's so important to disclose on forms, basically. So on pupillage application forms, I've been guilty of this in the past, and I know we talked about this a bit earlier, but I think it is really important to just kind of tick yes, it's not asking about your identity, that's purely for data, and I think it's possible too that chambers just don't know the scale of what it is that they're, they need to accommodate for, or how their policy should be formed, because people don't feel confident disclosing. That's brilliant. I think we constantly talk about uh, yeah how it helps individuals or how it helps other people out there. But yeah, we haven't talked much about what you do can influence others. Uh, and yeah, just just that I hadn't really thought about just that equality and diversity form. You know, if you don't put it anywhere else, if you put it there, then it can benefit. So yeah, that's a really fantastic point. And uh, yeah, a little bit of a selfless point as well. It's like well, you know, it can actually help others by by making that disclosure. So that's wonderful, wonderful point to end on. Um, thank you so much. Uh, we'll finish there, but um, this has been really enlightening and, and really opening. Thank you. And you have the loveliest podcast voice. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so thank you so much. Um, it's been it's been wonderful to talk to you openly about this because uh, we, we met Taylor through the Inner Temple Drama Society, which is where I met Halima as well. Um, yep. And yeah, we've, we've worked together and we, you know, we, we've talked about it before because I was choreographing Taylor in some dances and you know, we had to talk about that as well. So that was really important, but uh, it's been lovely to talk to you in a bit more detail and, and no more. And no more. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing and being so open. Thank you, Taylor. Uh, yeah, I mean, thank you both. I think the podcast has been amazing and it's really, it's just the Canadian accent. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> we love accents. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And um, for those listening, this has been Disabilities Not a Bar. Thank you so much for tuning in um, and we'll hopefully see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening from myself, from Halima. Bye. Sorry. And goodbye from Taylor. Thank you, Taylor, for coming on and goodbye as well. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you.